Is this a pulpit? Well, God bless you guys. Thanks for having a pastor from Fresno down here. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, there was a study done a couple of years ago about the strength of men with men. <clears throat> it was done on the level of the strength and done on the level of endurance. And uh, what was going on is that they had a man come and grab a curl bar. And they had him rooted on by a couple of women. You know, go Jack, go, you can do it, go. And uh, then, with that encouragement, he tried to lift the weight. And then the second time around, he had the, the, the curls lifted halfway, and just about the time he started to fail, the women encouraged him, go Jack, go, lift that weight. And they did the same with men. Men in the back saying, come on Jack, you can do it, lift that weight, come on more brother. And... Uh, a man was able to lift 10 pounds more and hold 10 pounds longer when men encouraged him than when women encouraged him. Because there's something different that happens when men get together in unity and solidarity and fraternity and give each other permission to be men. I don't know if you've been awake the last couple of years or not, but in the last 50 years there has been a strong agenda on the heart of secularists to feminize the men of America. And as a result, it has confused us and made us feel guilty about traits that are inherent in, in men, what we call 80 percentiles. 80% of men who are born have classic masculine characteristics that you don't ever have to really nurture out. A kid just starts, if you, we tried to raise our boys without any guns and swords, and they started biting their bologna sandwiches into guns and swords and stuff. It was just inherent. And... Um, there is a masculinity that's inherent in men when they're born, 80%. 20% men who are born are what we call circles rather than squares. That is, they're a little more on the gentle side. Uh, they're a little bit more on the sensitive side. And for men like that, they're just as equally manly as anyone else. We find both of those poles balanced in Jesus. He was both a gentleman and the Lord took care of business, man. And so for the, what we call circles, we try to square them up a little and make them squircles. And for the masculine guys that are a little bit too on the medium rare of the steak, uh, we try to smooth them out just a little bit. But inherent in us are things that only men can bring out of us. A woman can comfort you, but only a man can take off your shame. And uh, so I'm glad to be together with you this morning. I, I come from a church tradition where... Um, People antagonize me if they like what's going on. They don't say nothing if they don't. And so if I say anything that you agree with or that you like, can you do me a favor and just say something like, preach it, keep it on, keep it up. And uh, if it starts to get quiet, then I know that there's butts among us. And I wish there were no butts, but there might be butts among, among us that the circulation is cut off and you want to go home. So as long as you're encouraging me, I'll talk on. And when you stop, then... We know it's time to quit, okay? Another thing, another thing, guys, is I, I is uh, that this morning uh, my mission isn't to come and, and take burdens off you, and I know you guys are burdened and you're, you're weary, but what I have to say and what I've been saying around churches in California about passing the baton is that it's an oracle from God. It's, it's an oracle from God, at least to me. 
And an oracle is a burden. It's something that places on you something inside of you that elicits energy. You, 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 you hear it and you want to do something. You want to take it. Uh, revelation without application is castration. And so uh, my job this morning is to introduce a concept to you and let that energy work out its application uh, within you. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, in the tradition that I come from, we stand for the reading of the Word. So would you stand with me for a moment? And I'd like to read a few verses for you out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1 says, These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing, the Jordan, to possess. Now notice this. He's doing all this so that, so that you, your children, and their children, you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord. When you read fear the Lord in, in uh, the Old Testament, the word fear, the Hebrew word there, means to love God and to obey God. doesn't mean to tremble or come under condemnation. Love or trust and obey God. So after them, the children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy a long life. Not just live long, but enjoy it. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So just a quick advertisement, so that if you get tired quick, I already preached it right here and now. I'll just preach it right here and now. Give you the point, and then see if I can't get it flushed out before you get tired. The point is that the Lord wants them to enjoy their long life and that the Lord wants them to pass on their legacy of faith to the third and to the fourth generation. And everyone said? Amen. Oh, how in the heck do you do that? You mean to tell me, Pastor Pete, I, I've been working hard at just trying to get it to my kids and get it myself, and you're telling me that, that the, Lord, the Lord puts a summons and a duty on me to get it to my my progeny, my ancestry, my, to the second, the third, to the fourth generation, I'm supposed to be giving it in a way that it makes it to the third and the fourth generation? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? He explains it in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Ichad, one Lord, one in the plural. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Engrave them or carve them or impress them into your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Talk about them when you walk along the road. Talk about them when you lie down. Talk about them when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Tie them as symbols or bind them as symbols on your heads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and write them upon the gates of your city. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. Amen. You may be seated, brothers. <clears throat> There's a race that's going on, if I might use the metaphor of an 800 meter relay race with hurdles and bear traps on the sides. And there's a race that's going on. It's a four-man relay race. We see the runners come up to the line. The four relay runners. They are in top condition. They've never been at the, better at the top of their game. 
Each of them themselves could win an individual race. And they line up. And the first one, as the gun fires, runs the race of his life. He runs his legs successfully. And at the end, successfully hands the baton off to the second runner. The second runner runs the race of his life. He's strong, he's full of endurance, full of skill, highly prepared. And he hands off successfully to the third runner. The third runner runs faster than the first two. And they are absolutely smoking the rest of the teams when the runner comes around the corner and fails in handing the baton to the fourth man. If he would have handed the baton to that guy, they ran so well that the fourth guy was in such a position of, of maximized potential that he would have won the race if he just casually ran it. But it all boiled down to the fact that it wasn't in the strength of the runners, it wasn't in the particular speed or the conditioning of the runners, but it was in, man, it was in the handoff of the baton. And you can run the race of your life, fail in the handoff, and lose the whole race. The scripture says it's not just successful if you make it to heaven. It's not just successful if you get your kid to make it to heaven with you. I don't know about you, but I suffer emotional pain at the thought that my great-great-granddaughter, my great-great-grandson would be murdered. They would be victimized. They would be prostitutes. They would be murderers. They would be criminals. And then lastly, if the Lord showed me a vision of the future and I saw that great-great-great-granddaughter and great-great-grandson in hell, that personally bothers me. And then to read the scripture and to find out that the Lord has laid upon me as a man the responsibility to so spend my life and so lay down my life that I not only successfully pass the legacy of faith to my children, but I do it in such a way that they own it and the responsibility to likewise pass it to their children in such a way that their children love it and own the responsibility to successfully hand the baton to their children. And if that doesn't happen and my children make it and my grandchildren make it and my great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren go to hell, I feel like I fumbled the race. That great-great-grandchild in the future is waiting and relying on great-great-grandpa to successfully get that baton and legacy to them. Because they're going to be living in a world that's ten times more perverse and more anti-Christ than the one you're living in. So it's important that I get the baton to them. That I live my life and that I die. Guaranteeing that it's going to make it. And that's possible. There's a, a problem. A lot of guys don't. And the reason why is because most of us have been castrated by the culture in which we live. Uh, Patrick Morley, in one of the books that we use uh, predominantly in our men's discipleship called, um, called uh, The Man in the Mirror. Have you ever read the book? Man in the Mirror? Yeah, it's a big time book, man. And we use it, and I've, I've met in my life with about 30 men on a weekly basis, one at a time, and just gone through that book with them, made sure they could go through that book with others. And uh, it's one of the principal books we use. Anyway, Patrick Morley talked about our culture and talked about the fact that our culture produces geldings. They produce castrated men 
who are Christians or castrated Christian men. And uh, he, he answers a question, and the question is, why has an American society been positively impacted for the good rather than showing signs of such rabid moral decline that it has been compared with a decadent society that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Why hasn't our society been impacted by believing men and women? To the point where there's no spiral down, but spiral up. And this is what Morley said. He said, the sad reality is that claims of religious commitment run high in our country, but impact is at an all-time low. At the very point when Christians have come out of the closet, our culture has sunk into a moral sewer. The unfortunate result of this religious popularity is that since the mid-70s, a third impoverished value has evolved in the church called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity means to pursue the God we want instead of the God who is. Help me, Jesus. It is the tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God Wanting God to be more of the grandfatherly type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. It is a sensing of the need for God, but on our own terms. It is wanting the God we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of Him too. It's God relative instead of God absolute. It's God light instead of God heavy. He continues, cultural Christianity is Christianity made impotent. It is Christianity with little or no impact on the values and beliefs of our society. Cultural Christianity requires God to grant us personal peace and affluence to prove that He loves us. It is God's love, but it's not God holy. Like the transformer toys that children play with, we often want God to be adjustable to our agenda, to adapt to our whims instead of us adapting to His will. Is it true? In a relay race, it's not important that I cross the finish line if I'm number one, two, or third runner. All that's important is that I run my leg of the race and pass on that baton in such a way that it's passed on. It's the fourth runner that's got to finish the race. And it's that fourth runner that you guys have got to start thinking of if you're going to adapt the transcendent cause that ties everything you are and do to something grander than your own personal lives and agenda. And every man, if he's going to have balls, needs to have a transcendent cause. That's why most men are called to lead the church. Not that I'm against women ministers, but most men are called to lead the church or be the lead man because, man, it takes balls to be a pastor. Amen. <laughs> I mean balls. Why is it that a relay race would, would lose the, 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 the race itself? It's because the first, second, or third dude in the race paid too much attention to his own leg and not enough attention to handing off. And most men that I know need something grander than just barely making it to heaven to be potent in this society. They need some responsibility greater than just being good if they're going to be warriors. And that responsibility reaches four generations. So what happens if you fumble the baton? Well, there's a high price if we don't get the baton passed. And that high price, and if, if you've got your outline this morning, 
Um, you can pay attention to it if you like, but there's way too many points for me to make, so I'll be skipping. So you might want to pay attention or something. <laughs> That's something new. You might want to pay attention and, and see where we're going. But um, there's a temporal uh, consequence if we drop the baton. And this is a heavy concept, man, in the scriptures. In fact, it's perverted in our society, largely in the charismatic movement, where people want to uh, co-opt their responsibility on the devil or something else for their failures. And I'm not doing this now. Nevertheless, we can't escape it. That there is a biblical revelation called generational blessings and generational curses. And I'm just going to assume you've heard of it. And if not, I'm just going to introduce the principle. And the principle is that there is a divine intent in what most people emphasize as generational curses. That is, inheriting bad things from your ancestry. And not enough emphasis placed on the original divine intent of inheritance or legacy, which is you inheriting the blessing of those in your ancestral line who were faithful. The whole idea behind passing things down was that God would reward those people that followed him faithfully with a legacy of blessing that was supposed to be inherited by their children and on to the third and the fourth generation. The, the downside of that is that it works in reverse too. Talking about this inherited generational blessing, you might want to write down Hebrews chapter 7, 9, and 10. It's a mind blower. Check this out. It says that Levi, of the family of Jacob, one of his 12 sons, Levi, that Levi actively participated in giving tithes to the first Old Testament high priest we come across called Mel. We'll just call him Mel this morning. The name is Melchizedek, but we'll call him Mel. And it said that Levi was blessed in his life because Levi paid tithes to Mel. And he received the blessing because of that. The problem is, Levi wasn't even born yet. We're told Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, yet it wasn't Levi that paid him. It was Abraham. And as yet, Abraham didn't have any children yet. Levi wasn't born yet. When Abraham was paying tithes to the king of Salem, he was still childless. It was later on that Sarah and him got together and had Isaac. Isaac then and his wife got together and they had a son who was Jacob. Jacob got together with his wife and they had 12 sons, one of whom was Levi. Levi was credited for and he was blessed for being the one who paid the tithes to Melchizedek when it wasn't him but his great-great-grandfather who paid those tithes. And then Hebrews says, verse 10 that Levi did it, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, ready? While he was still in the loins of his great-great-grandfather Abraham. We're talking about three generations of sperm here. While he was still one of those squiggly little deals in the testicles of Abraham, whose sperm wasn't the one that got Jacob's wife pregnant, was it? What are we talking about here? We're talking about generational blessing. We're talking about a blessing that went through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and reached to Levi. In the same case, there's another side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is that wickedness found in a father or mother 
can also be inherited by that child in the future that chooses to walk in the same path of sin that his ancestors walked in. Consequences are not the same as punishment. God is not going to punish you for the sins of an ancestor. He will punish the ancestor. But rarely does an ancestor reap all of the punishment God put on them, and as a result, something stays in the family line that can be tripped or skipped later on, depending on your walk. And we'll talk about that idea in a minute. My point is that personal sin, whether from actively walking in sin or neglecting to walk in righteousness, which is a sin of, of omission, is never limited to your own personal experience or consequence. None of us sins to ourselves and none of us reaps to ourselves. What we do will impact those around us, including our children, to the third and the fourth generation. Breaking the second commandment. If you or anybody in your family has ever visited a witch doctor or a fortune teller or whatever, you break the second commandment, what's the Bible say? It says that there will be a punishment for that sin that is visited and experienced to the third or the fourth generation. Billy Sunday, who was a great uh, baseball player and was a, a real fiery evangelist in the 30s and 40s, in one of his sermons entitled Under the Sun, was quoted as saying, The devil has a mortgage on some people from the cradle. So temporal consequences mean that if you fumble the baton and you screw up in your life, it's not just going to visit you, but you may set some things in motion that can be activated later on in your children to the third and the fourth generation. There's eternal consequences as well. And those eternal consequences are also the things that bother me. Thinking about any child of mine through my children and their children, any progeny of mine ending up lost and in hell bothers me. And uh, I, I hope it bothers you. That, that's the burden of this. And I, I guess it's like um, the fact that sometimes I'm called upon as a pastor to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And so uh, we're, we're going to afflict the comforted tonight. 1 Corinthians 16, 30, 13 assumes that you guys know how to act like men. It assumes that you know what manhood is. It says, be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, 12, it says, be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. In the New International Version, it says it like this, be strong and let us Fight bravely for our people. This word, play the man, that was used in Scripture, play the man, doesn't talk about playing games. It talks about strapping on the sword. It talks about getting into the arena. It talks about acting bravely, courageously. It means men, it means women, children, and elderly in the back. Men stand up in front and be a human shield and take the bullet. Uh, I'm talking to our youth ministries. Years ago, something happened that completely turned around our youth ministries, and if I have a chance, I'd like to brag a little bit on what we've seen happening generationally. But years ago, I challenged my youth pastor and his staff and said, you have got to stop trying to help kids live in this society. And you need to start helping these kids die in this society. When you start speaking to teenagers with the expectation that they are called upon to lay down their life for the faith, they'll start living the faith. And we have seen absolute explosion happen because of that. 
play the man. Well, what in the heck does man mean? We've had 60 years of castrated language. There's been actually an agenda. There's a book by a lady by the name of Suzanne Summers. That's why it's so important, because she wrote about the war on boys. And in the war on boys, she uncovered false statistics and other kinds of things purposely uh, focused on the school system in order to emasculate our boys and feminize our boys uh, and have a feminine society. 60 years of this, to the point where a man doesn't even know that there is such a language as masculinities. That there's a language that belongs to masculinity. And language that helps them form in their imagination what a man is like. If I asked you men this morning, tell me what you view a man to be like, we'd probably have all kinds of different answers if we had any answers at all, and they'd probably all be wrong. From the time a kid is eight years old in our, our church... They are taught, boys and girls, since 99.9% .9 of all divorces is caused by one principal thing. And what is it? It's caused by poor mate selection. <laughs> then it's important for boys to be able to spot what a real lady is like, and it's equally important for little girls to spot what a real man is like before they get involved. So what's a real man like, men? The eight-year-old boys in our, our church can rip it to you right now. A real man rejects passivity. He counters the sin of Adam who stood by Eve's side silent the whole time she was taking an onslaught from the devil in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of Adam's passivity, the federal headship of the human race fell and you and I have a sin nature to struggle with today. I'd call that a generational curse, wouldn't you? A real man rejects passivity. A real man, too, assumes personal responsibility. A real man, three, leads courageously. A real man, four, accepts a transcendent cause. And five, he is competing for a heavenly reward so he can't get bought. Amen. Is it time to leave? No. Okay. Sherlock Holmes was captured by his nemesis, Dr. Moriarty. Moriarty said, I'm going to give you and Watson a chance to get out. This is what we'll do. We'll play five hands of bridge. If you win every game, I'll let you go. If not, there's some hungry piranhas that want to meet you. Moriarty starts whining. I never played bridge a couple of times. I'm no good at bridge. Why can't we play another hand of cards? Something I'm good at. This isn't fair. Holmes turns to him with the now famous line, Oh, Watson, the game is afoot, man. Quit your whining. Quit your complaining. It's been laid down. The arena is open. The lions are loose. Let's play the game. Let's enter the arena. Let's strap on the sword and let's play the man. So how do you run this race to win? Two points I want to make under point three, and that's to two principles that have changed our church around so that in the last five years, I've married at least 50 couples where both the man and the woman were virgins. And they weren't because they were ugly either, but because they were intentional. Some were but ugly, but they didn't know that. And butt ugly people are immoral anyway, so that doesn't make a difference. <laughs> the first thing 
the first, there are two T's. The first thing is, if you're going to pass the baton and you're going to get the baton, then you have to have activated in your life traditions. There has to be in your life the practice of and the commemoration of things that are embodied in traditions. I wrote a book and a, an article came out in Charisma last year off the book. Charisma in December of last year had my article on discovering the beauty of Christmas traditions. And I wrote a book called Green Tree on Christmas, on the Christ Mass, in which I prove historically that Christmas was not a Christianization of the pagan ceremony called Saturnalia, but that Christmas was being celebrated 30 years before the pagans ever even thought of that celebration. They took from us and paganized it. I also argued for the fact that Christ was born on December the 25th and gave historical reasons behind that. In other words, what I was trying to do for Christians is try to get them to stop whining and complaining and, and buying into the pagan argument that Christmas is just a paganized religious form. And that, in fact, we have reason to go for it during Christmas and celebrate Christ during Christmas and develop traditions and practices during Christmas that all point to Jesus since it's all about Jesus. Traditions. Every, uh, every Friday or Saturday night when my kids were young, we celebrated the Jewish Sabbath. Our renovation of the Jewish Sabbath, where the father gets up and lays his hands on each of his children and cries over his children and prays for his children and in front of their, his children, he kisses their mother and blesses her out of Proverbs for being a woman that's more valuable than jewels. We have a great dinner. Uh, we go around, wash each other's hands like Jesus washed the feet. We've done this. We did this all through the time they were young. As a tradition that passes on the Father's legacy and blessing to his children. <clears throat> Traditions. And the other thing is a transcendent cause. Two principles, a tradition, transcendent cause. Because there's got to be something you hand to your children that's either mythologized or so legendary that it's bigger than life. It was here before them. It will anchor them in the future that will exist after them and gives reason for why they're living their life now. I am not the sum total of who I am. I am the merging together of people in my background, good or bad, that either fumbled the baton or handed off the baton. I'm an adopted kid. My father tried to kill my mother in front of my eyes at four. I've been adopted. My mom named me Francis McNamara Donahue while living in the inner city of Washington, D.C. You might as well put ears on me during rabbit season and say hop to school. And we were in a black neighborhood. I remember, and I had to go to Catholic school in the inner city of a black neighborhood in Washington, D.C., where there was a bunch of white Irish people in there. I remember Sister Agnes. In those days, the nuns had beards, and Sister Agnes would come up. <laughs> ah, never mind. You get the story. Things were not exactly going my way. And... Uh, uh, I'm going to clear brain enema. Phew. Okay. We're, roots and wings is what we're talking about. Traditions and transcendent causes are broken down into what I call roots and wings. That's two things that you need. That's two things that your kids need. It's two things that your disciples need. They need roots. What are roots? Traditions. It's what existed before them that roots them and grounds them in an identity 
handed to them that was formed before them. So traditions, the faith, as it was handed down from the apostles, not as it's handed down from, from uh, David Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, and the whole rise of Gnosticism in our day. Handed down from the apostles, that's what orthodox means. Ortho means straight, doxa means teaching. We want to hand off the teaching of the apostles. And then we want to have those wings, those, those empowerment tools necessary to help a kid Take what you've gotten and given to them and then discover ways in which they can ingeniously apply that to their own culture. I tell my kids, I don't want you guys walking in my shadow. I want you walking in my light. I've cast a light for you and that light is far ahead of me. And my kids, each of them accepted Christ and were baptized at four. And they were, they were so much better Christians than I was. I'd come home after pastoring people all day long, full of the devil. And come into my house, you know, and immediately take off my pastor's hat and go, what's for dinner? And kids, did you take out your trash? Did you do that? They'd come up to me and they'd say, Dad, have you read your Bible lately? <laughs> yes, I have. Have you read Ephesians? Many times. Chapter 6? Yes, yes, chapter 6. I know where you're going. Verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. No, Dad. What verse are you talking about? 4. What's it say? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. <laughs> then we started recovery groups in our church, and my kids started to learn recovery language. Look, when I say to do it, I mean to do it now. Well, Dad, you know the kind of up, 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 uh, bringing that you exist, uh, had, your dad and all that. These are just your issues. They're rooted in your issues, and you need to take care of your issues. There's a hurt child somewhere in there that just needs to know that you... I remember one day my daughter Shekinah at about 11 called China, and she was having a conversation with somebody in China. She was so jazzed about that that she made another call and called the police department and she was having a conversation at the fire department. Fire department shows up in my house. <laughs> Later on, I come home and dad's the executioner. So I come in the door. My wife says she's in the bedroom. I come in the bedroom. She falls on her knees and goes, oh, Lord Jesus, please have mercy. Have my dad. You showed my father mercy with all the things he did. My girl, please have mercy. <laughs> so that day... I did, but she tried that a second time, and I warmed her butt. <laughs> Insignificant. Insignificance. Insignificance. The castrating power of our culture and insignificance that boils a man down to household chores and boredom and duties. It's said in America that men, they play at their work, they work at their play, and they play at their worship because of insignificance. And what we need is we need something that is significant. C.S. Lewis once wrote that in our culture, it castrates the men and then bids the geldings go and be fruitful. And we need something that gives us back our virility and power as men of faith. We need something that goes beyond the domesticating chores of everyday life, even in the church. The church is as guilty. We get a bunch of guys together, we jam them up, we jack them up, just so they can be good. But that's not good enough for a man to just be good. 
We need something greater than just being good. We need something that is a graphic opponent we can get our hands on. We need something that calls out in us the heroic and the manly. And not this castorating culture in which we live that constantly tells us that we need to act like women. Well, honey, you're just not sensitive enough. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm not sensitive enough. Why is that? Is while you're making friends with Bambi, I have to go out and cut its throat. We're going to have to have him for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try to feminize me. <laughs> Say to my wife, "Don't try to feminize me." Well, sometimes you come across well so hard. You know why? Why? I'm a man. <laughs> Would you like me to be a woman? No, I don't want you to be a woman. I want you to be a man. I said, no, you don't. I don't? No, no woman wants a man to be a man. Then complains because he's not. You just go home. All these women that come to pastors and say, I wish my man was just the head of his household. I wish he was the spiritual leader of his household. I said, no, you don't. So how can you say that? Yes, I do. No, you don't. Unless he's a spiritual leader like a woman would be. If I get your man in here and we too fine-tune him and he starts getting some balls and he comes home and he starts being the leader of his household, you're going to freak out coming here wanting to divorce him because you don't have any intention of giving him the controls of, the, of your family. John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart, wrote this. Our local, Jew, our local zoo had for years one of the biggest African lions I've ever seen. It was a huge male, nearly 500 pounds, with a wonderful mane and absolutely enormous paws. Sure, he was caged, but I'm telling you, the bars offered small comfort when you stood within six feet of that thing and any other situation that you could see easily dismembering you. Honestly, I felt I ought to shepherd my boys past that cage and get them in safe distance as if that lion could just pounce on us through the bars. Yet he was my favorite. And whenever the others would wander on to the monkey house or the, cage, or the tiger cages, I doubled back just a few more minutes in the presence of someone so powerful, noble, and deadly. Perhaps it was fear mingled with admiration. Perhaps it was simply that my heart broke for the old big cat. This wonderful, terrible creature should have been out roaming the savannah, ruling his pride, striking fear in the heart of every wild beast, bringing down zebras and gazelles whenever it urged him. Instead, he spent every hour of every day and every night of every year alone in a cage smaller than our bedrooms. His food served to him through a little mental door. Sometimes late at night after the city had gone to sleep, I'd hear his roar. He would come down from the hills. It sounded not so much fierce, but rather mournful. During all my visits, he never looked at me in the eye. I desperately wanted him to, wanted for his sake, the chance to stare me down would have loved it if he took a swipe at me and scared me to death. But he just lay there, weary, with that deep weariness that comes from boredom, taking shallow breaths, rolling now and then from side to side. For you see, after years of living in a cage, a lion no longer even believes it's a lion, and a man no longer believes he's a man. What you men need is an ultimate cause. You need something bigger than yourselves that will exist beyond you. You need that transcendent cause that makes sense out of everything required of you to lay down your life. <clears throat> now I have to make two quick points and pass on if I'm going to conclude. 
And those quick points are going to skip a lot of things. But one is, I want you to know about the myth of adolescence. Ninety years ago, we had in our society a society largely built on the heroic acts of mature 12-year-olds. Ninety years ago, there was no such concept called adolescence. Historians John and Virginia Nemos wrote in Harvard University's program of human development, the concept of adolescence as generally understood and applied did not exist for before the last two decades of the 19th century. One could almost call it an invention of that period. Did you know that kids were being groomed to begin their careers at the age of 12 since every society up until this time in this society assumed that 12-year-olds were adults? Every society. A girl was an adult at 12, a boy at 13. They were able to get married. They, were, they assumed the responsibilities of the adult community at the age of 12. And they were groomed to begin their careers through a process of apprenticeship when they were 12 years of age. Some of them at 8 years were shipped off, 8 years of age, apprenticed and shipped off to other countries in order to hold down a job for their families. Many kids started school at the age of 8, graduated at the age of 12. Teenagers did not play around because they were already in a trade. People rose kids, raised up kids in those days, not because they felt they needed to have fun, but because life was hard and they felt they needed to train their kids to be successful and uh, to, to be uh, uh, living potential examples in a society that was going to hurt them. Hurting, tribulation, were just common givens. And so they raised children with a hardihood to be able to make it in a hard world. John Quincy Adams served in an ambassadorial post in the court of Catherine the Great in Russia at the age of 14. In, 19, in 1813, U.S. Naval officer James Farragate assumed command of a captured British vessel. He was only 12 years old. His naval career started at 9. It is a fact that children can be more handicapped by low expectations than anything else, and so can a man. And yet society today has successfully achieved a dumbing down process that makes us on purpose prolong the immaturity of our children for the purpose of marketing and sexualization. And the same thing happens to men. Have you ever known a man who was 40 years old but had the maturity of a 15 year old boy? story was told 20 years ago, true story about a kid who was five years old. A guy came to his rural home, found his mother hanging clothes outside, put a knife to her throat, started peeling off her clothes. He started to get ready to complete the act of rape when he heard the swinging door open and the five-year-old coming out. Double barrel shotgun pointed at his head and that boy had a look of a determination on him. And the man let go of the mother and started moving toward the boy saying, now son, when he heard the thing, lock and load. That boy backed that man into his britches and down the road where he was captured later on. But how does a five-year-old command that kind of focus to be able to pull something like that off that saved his mother's life? He was not raised by people who had low expectations. There's a thing that has been labeled the Peter Pan syndrome to try to talk about the phenomena of men who are immature. 
men who play at life but aren't serious about life. Do you mind if I kind of bring it to an end with Peter Pan? If you can find Peter Pan in your notes, the Peter Pan syndrome was coined years ago by a, uh, a man by the name of Dan Kiley in his book, The Peter Pan Syndrome, Men Who Have Never Grown Up. And uh, Peter Pan is in reference to the classic J.M. Barrie novel and play about an adolescent boy who refuses to grow up and teaches a young rootless girl named Wendy and her brothers how to fly to a place called Neverland where they could have perpetual fun and no responsibilities. The play's full title was called Peter Pan or the Boy Who Would Not Grow Up. The symptoms of the Peter Pan syndrome, if you want to write them down, the symptoms are this. Number one, the Peter Pan man is old enough to be considered an adult but behaves like an irresponsible adolescent. Peter Pan man has adult desires to be in a loving relationship with a woman, but the child inside of him wants her pity. The Peter Pan man, part of a man, um, let me say it this way, the adult part of a man yearns for intimacy and closeness, but the Peter Pan part, that child part, is afraid to be touched and fears the responsibilities associated with adult relationships. Many people who thought they knew the Peter Pan man well find out later that they didn't know him at all because he's always playing games with people. He only lets others know him superficially as playmates, but not as close friends bonded together by core values and convictions. The Peter Pan man can appear to be fun-loving and happy-go-lucky and full of harmless mischief, but deep inside he's sad and afraid of that life that he's living, that it's a waste of time, and as he gets older, he feels life is passing him by. Eventually, the immaturity in Peter Pan men gets old, and the people who love them become discouraged at their lack of maturity, empathy, and commitment. More than anything, Peter Pan men fear growing up because they associate it with being tied down and being bored. They would rather play. In a conversation with Wendy Darling's mother, about the possibility of her taking Peter Pan the orphan in, Peter Pan's personal agenda and life motto comes out. Peter says, would you send me to school? Mrs. Darling says, yes. And then to the office? And Mrs. Darling says, yes, I suppose. Soon I should be a man. Very soon, says Mrs. Darling. Well, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to learn. Learning is boring. No one is going to catch me, lady, and make me a man. I want to always be a little boy and have fun. Peter Pan's desire to stay young forever was actually a militant, stiff-necked refusal to ever grow up and become a man. And so this myth of adolescence has generated in our society today generations of men who are Peter Pan men. And there's a problem. And the problem is that Peter Pan men usually go after Wendy women. Wendy women. Wendy in Peter Pan's story has two brothers, Michael and John. Peter Pan lures Wendy and her two brothers to Neverland with a promise of never-ending adventure and fun. Each sees the other differently. Wendy sees Peter as a playmate who could become her boyfriend, but Peter sees Wendy as a mother who did the dishes. So what kind of girl or woman is attracted to a Peter Pan man? I, I, I'm not talking about your wife here, okay? But 
The woman, women that are attracted to the Peter Pan in a man, these Wendy women, are attracted to and seem to, to be, to attract, they're attracted to and attract dashing, daring, fun-loving, dangerous, and irresponsible Peter Pan men. However, two people cannot be irresponsible and immature and carefree and fun-loving. And so Wendy, like Wendy Darling in the story, longs to have fun and be forever adventurous, but as soon as she sees Peter Pan start to drop the ball of responsibilities, she begins to control him through mothering. And so what happens in a Peter Pan marriage is the wife that married you because you were adventurous and fun-loving and carefree starts to resent you later on because you are not responsible. And she blames you for not being responsible and she loses respect for you because you're not responsible. You're too much of a risk taker. And so due to the neglect of those responsibilities, Wendy women can't ever seem to rise above the level of undone chores and other responsibilities and caretaking behaviors. In other words, they begin to mother you. That's why so many men who are married have poor sex lives. Because for a woman who's married to a Peter Pan man, he's the boy, she's the mama, and sex would be incest. It almost feels incestuous to go and have a great sex life with a man in your life you have to raise like he's a boy. Wendy's attract Peter Pan men who are looking for someone to be their mamas. Peter Pan attract Wendy because Wendy's are someone who looks to be rescued from a life of chores and boredom. But a Wendy woman will never let a Peter Pan man become a man, and a Peter Pan man will never let a Wendy woman become his co-equal in ministry unless they crucify these things in their lives. Well, that's the problem in a nutshell. As we face the, the 20th century or the 21st century, guess what, guys? We have three competitors right now that are ahead of us as Christian men. What's the leading religion in America and Europe right now? No. Wicca. Wicca, the witchcraft organization that's tied into the New Age movement is the leading competitor, the leading religion in America and in Europe right now. What's the second? Islam. Third, Hinduism. Now we have a problem fundamentally. We're being outgrowed by the year 2025 what once was Christian Europe will not then be totally Islamic. There's about 8 million Muslims in America. 9,000 of them serve in the armed forces. 135,000 converts are won to Christ in America each year. We are being outpaced and we are being outrun. And one of the chief reasons why these three religions are beating us at the draw is number one, they win converts. Well, that's nothing new, so do we. But they win converts and keep them. And number two, they don't lose their children to other religions. A child born in the, these societies also remain faithful to the religion of that society. We lose our kids all the time. As a matter of fact, who do you think are the ones becoming Islamic or Wiccan or Hindu? It's the children of Christian fathers who dropped the baton. And the reason why these religions are growing and we're not, by the way, there's been 70 million Christians martyred for their faith since the beginning of, of the reign of the Caesars. And of 70 million being put to death, 45 million, that's more than half, were put to death in the last hundred years, principally by Islamic religions. 
Now, how would you like it if you look back three generations from now, or in the future, three generations from now, and your great-great-grandson was named Sahid or Ahmed or Muhammad, like Cassius Clay's father, who could look now and see that his son's name Muhammad Ali. He used to be a Christian. Or Lou Cinder, who's now what? Now you remember. How would you like it if you could look in the future and see your your great-great-granddaughter practicing witchcraft or having a red dot in her head and raising up your grandchildren, your progeny, to be Islamic, the very nation that shed the most Christian blood of all the religions combined. The reason why that is a potential that someone in your family may drink poison in Guyana with Jim Jones or may, God forbid, become Islamic or Hinduistic the reason why that's a high potential men is because we are not running the race like they are with the intention to really win it. Paul said, run men that you may obtain. Run as if you could win. Don't just box the air. Don't just play around. Don't be a Peter Pan man. Spend it. Lay it down. Put your neck on the line in order to get that baton to the third and the fourth generation. Some of the most valuable artwork that we have in our society today comes from Michelangelo. And they asked Michelangelo one time, how do you get sculptures like that? So detailed, so re realistic. He said, well, what I do is I envision the angel in the marble, and then I start chiseling little by little to let that angel out. Jesus said to those that believed on him in John chapter 8, 32, those that believed on him, he said, those who already believed on him, he said, if ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set the angel free. The gospel is a mighty whack on the marble, gentlemen, but it's not the only whack necessary to get that angel out. We have to continue in the word to be his authentic disciples. And as we continue, the truth will set us free. But there were a lot of marble that Michelangelo never finished. They're called the slaves. This art collection called the slaves is where you see hunks of marble. And there's a leg coming out, perfect in symmetry, coming out of the marble and it was never finished. Another has an arm reaching up or half a body coming out. But because Michelangelo was distracted, he never finished it, and so he called them the slaves. How many churches are filled with half-formed men who are only half-formed because they stopped chiseling away at the marble? My prayer is in this church, you men will receive a transcendent vision. You're going to go to promise keepers and man... Promise Keepers we had in Fresno, 65,000 of us met for three days, and it completely jacked up our minds, man. I mean, I was ready to pee lightning and fart thunder. <laughs> I didn't know whether to drive my car home or carry it home. And it's going to do the same for you. I mean to tell you, your masculinity, your potency is going to get all jacked up. But man, if it does not communicate back into daily life that embraces a transcendent cause,
that refuses to be passive, that assumes personal responsibility, leads courageously, embraces that transcendent cause, and competes for a heavenly reward. And if you men don't outcompete your counterparts in Islam and Hindu and Wicca, your grandchild just very well, likely, be primed for the Antichrist. We've got to pass a baton to our kids with the idea that they're going to die. That their faith is going to cost them their life. And they need to live like it's going to cost them their life now in order for them to make it to the third and the fourth generation. Hey guys, I really appreciate you having me down, man. <laughs>